Good morning. All right. Hey, praise God for being here. Thank you all for having us uh, here. And I can't express to you what a joy I had of being, uh, becoming literally a member of your family, your church family, by spending time with this group here. It's probably one of the best mission trips I had ever uh, been on. You know, we look at the videos, and, and I'm sure over the course of this week, you've probably heard a lot of stories about the mission trip. You've probably seen a lot of pictures as it relates to the mission trip. And you probably even felt some of the emotions that came from the mission trip. But this is what we purpose to do before we left uh, Honduras, because we were wondering, how do we capture what's here and take it back to Conyers? How do we implement it in our prospective churches? How do we do these things? And so our effort here this morning is just to share our heart. This is what we agreed on collectively, just to share our heart with you, because it would take days to tell the story, every single story of every endeavor. I mean, the, the temple was completed, and that was a great thing. VBS went very well. The professions of faith uh, were great. People were helped medically at the medical clinic, and we could go on and on and on, and it would take a long time to tell it. But what we determined to do is just to let you know where we are as a result of all of those things that happened. Where did it leave our heart? Because I believe Laura described it best when she said revival, that our hearts were stirred for more, that we realized, man, that we were not giving God what we ought to give God. And we came back with a determination among this group, and we determined to spread the same fire, that, man, we are going to make sure people are in their rightful place in God, and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure this happens. And so we're going to pray this morning, and, uh, and we're just going to go ahead and get started. We're going to jump right into it. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we love you this morning, and we just praise you for your grace and your goodness. We give glory to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost forever. Father, our petition this morning is very simple, as I believe that the door to the throne of grace have been opened wide through a wonderful worship uh, this morning. Now, Father, we pray that we take care of our business as it relates before you, that we would come before the throne with a tremendous expectation to receive from you, Father. And not only that, but when we carry it away, Father, we will be ready to implement it, Father, and that which you have given it to us for. And so, Father, our prayer is simple, that the presence and the power of God will be with us this morning, and that you would do a work that only you can do, and that's been in our internal being, that you would do a work in our hearts that would transform our lives forever. Father, we do love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, listen, I don't have to tell you about your pastor. I had already heard about Mike Franklin. Uh, through Jack, and a longtime friend of Jack, and uh, boy, we would laugh about it uh, often, about Pastor Mike. I would just hear things. And so it was a great pleasure to get to meet him finally, right? And two things I quickly learned about Pastor Mike. Number one, he's very serious about his word, and he is a shepherd in every sense of the way, that he's serious about his congregation. And also, I left with the second thing, that Mike is one of the funniest men I know. <laughs> I wish I had time to tell you. He said something that had me on my knees for about three to four minutes laughing. The women in the other dorm said, we heard you cackling last night over there. What were y'all laughing about? And I didn't even want to go into telling them. But, man, he's an absolute uh, tremendous guy, and I praise God for him to be here. But I can tell you when our hearts connected. Me and Mike's heart connected as one morning we sat down before breakfast, and we were just talking about the state of the church and what needs to be done. And Mike made this comment. He says, listen, the key to revival is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. How many of you have your Bibles this morning? Okay, get your thumbs ready, because we've got a lot of scriptures we're going to flip through this morning. And if you don't have it, and if you don't navigate your Bible well, you might just want to write these scriptures down, because it's going to benefit you to go back and look at them. But this is what Mike said. He said that the secret to revival is found in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, he says, then will I hear from heaven 
then will I forgive their sins, and then will I heal their land. And I love that passage because before he tells us to pray, before he tells us to seek his face, before he tells us to turn from our evil ways, the first thing God asks us to do is humble ourselves. See, you will be amazed at what you see through the eyes of humility if you don humility. But if you don't put on the eye, see through the eyes of humility, the only thing that exists is pride. And everything that you look at, you'll look at through the eyes of pride. And the only problem with pride is this right here, is that pride will tell you you can when you can't. Pride will tell you you are when you're not. Pride is the biggest deceiver that's around. And so God says, listen, if my people who are called by my name, not the lost, he says, my people, if they would just humble themselves. Now, that's a big deal to us. Because as it relates to our personal lives, especially as it relates to our church, that's why I appreciate Mike so much. Mike said, when you come, I just want you to tell them the truth. I can't tell you how many churches you go to that the pastor is going to be sure to remind you of this one thing. Don't say anything that's going to offend the people. Don't say anything that's going to rub them the wrong way. No, Mike said, you go and you tell them what needs to be told. Because I tell you, man, it's hard to look at our own lives through the eyes of humility. One of the toughest things we do in life is to face the truth about our own lives. And it's tough to look at our church through the eyes of humility. We love to believe that we're knocking it out as a church, that we're doing it. But do you realize, man, that we have a rule, the Pareto rule that we call the 2080 rule, that 20% of the people would do 80% of the work in church? Listen, manuals are being written around that design. Because they say that's as good as any church is going to get. You're only going to have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. 80% is only going to be consumers. They're not going to do anything. And you know what the scary part about it? We've grown comfortable with that. We think that, man, we are experiencing the power of God with 20% of our body functioning. Listen, I stood before a group of junior high kids, and I asked them once. I said, is the church a living organism? They said, yes, sir. I said, is the church a living organism? They said, yes, sir. And I held it up right here. I said, I want you to imagine that I have a living organism in my hand. They said, okay. I said, and I want you to imagine that only 20% of its body is functioning. They said, okay. I said, I want you to give me some descriptive names for this living organism. The first kid yelled out, retarded. The second kid yelled out, handicapped. The third kid yelled out, dead. Yet, we have 20% of the church doing 80% of the work, and we want to think that we're experiencing the power of God. We want to think that we're experiencing God in the fullness of his manifested glory. Listen, we shouldn't flatter ourselves. See, pride will tell you that, but humility says, no, Lord, we're not knocking it out. As a church, we're not doing what we were created to do. And as an individual, I'm not giving you everything that I know I can give you. I'm not doing it. That's what humility will help you begin to understand. And so when we understood this, because I can tell you this right here, as I stood in that dump and on the way to the dump, we had just rolled by a horrific scene. And so, man, the tone was already set, and then we rolled into this dump, which was, man, the most horrible scene I've ever seen in my life. And I can tell you, man, as I stood in that dump, being overwhelmed by the needs, it's like, where do you even begin? I can tell you, man, I felt so inadequate. I just felt like, Lord, what do we do with this? This is incredible. And we haven't even seen the lights of it. What in the world do we do with it? And then I was reminded of this right here, that God is vowed by his name that he's going to recompense to each man according to his work. Meaning every wicked act will be judged in the world. And everyone who does wrong in this world will be judged. But this is what I'm reminded of, that even though God is going to judge every heinous act, the Bible says this right here, that judgment starts at the house of God. That God is going to judge the world for where it is right now. But he's going to want to hear from us as to how in the world did we let it get this way? How in the world did you stand back and watch this happen? I gave you the keys to the kingdom. 
I gave you all the power and all authority. You were protected. I told you not a hair on your head would be harmed, and you did nothing at all to turn the tide. I'm telling you, we're going to have to answer for that. We're going to have to stand before God one day, and he's going to want to know it. And I can tell you, it's a thing called apathy that will make us see the things in the world and not care. Apathy is just simply a lack of concern to where you just really don't care anymore. And the truth of the matter is things are happening all around us, and it seems like there's just a lack of concern. And so what we determined as a group, as revival was sparked in our heart, and I tell you, boy, it was just an intimate time that we had while we were there. The one thing that was stirred up in our lives was a tremendous zeal. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to it. In John chapter 2, it's recorded that Jesus walked into the temple, and when he walked into the temple, he saw money changing and everybody. They were doing some serious business in the house of God. And God was offended by it. And the Bible says, man, that he began to overturn the money changers' table. He made a quarter whip. Man, and he began to drive them out of the temple. He said, because you all have made my father's house a den of thieves, a house of merchandise. And God was offended by it. And so when the disciples saw this, the Bible says that when his disciples saw this, they remembered where it was written of him, zeal for my father's house has eaten me up. It was recorded from Psalm 69, and it was one of the characteristics of the coming Messiah that he would have a tremendous zeal for his father's house. And when they saw this, one of the things that identified him as being the Messiah is that they remember that it said, zeal for my father's house has eaten me up. I describe that zeal as a vehement desire to want to see order restored to our father's house. We want to see the church be what God created it to be. And that's what was stirred up in every last one of us a tremendous zeal, a desire to want to go back and get this house in order so that, man, we can truly glorify God and watch the great things that's going on. And so in the word we are to exhort, encourage, admonish this morning, it would be admonishing because the Bible does say that we should warn each other of the times to come. Because I can tell you, we're headed into some real bad ways. I can tell you, according to the Bible right here, the Bible says we're headed into times of evil that the world has never seen nor will ever see again. Which simply means that scene that we saw in the dump is nothing compared to what's coming. That there's a lot of things coming, and we got to get ready for it. I really believe that God is ready to combat these things through his church. I believe that God is ready to do a great thing. But see, before every great movement, there must be a great positioning. Before God can do this great thing, he needs to get the people of God in position. Meaning, we have to get to where we need to be so that we can be vessels of gold in the house of God to combat the evil to come. And what is the evil to come? This is one of the biggest ones in Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, which I'm going to ask you to turn to right now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Bible records, man, one of the signs of the end times, right? Now, you're dealing with a church at Thessalonica, and they were really confused about the coming of the day of the Lord because some of them thought that it had come and that they had been left behind. And so Paul wrote them a letter just to comfort them to say, no, 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 that day hadn't come yet, and I don't want you to be deceived about that day. Because can you imagine... The terror that must have fell on them, they thought the day of the Lord had come, and they thought they had been left behind. And so Paul needed to write this letter to comfort them, and he began to tell them what the day of the Lord is going to look like. And so if you would turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading from verse 1. And this is something, man, we got to be alerted to. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, 
for that day will not come unless the fallen away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. Now listen what he says. That day hadn't come yet. He said, because that day cannot come unless first this has to happen, the falling away. This is what many theologians describe as the great apostasy. Apostasy is simply a deliberate, a deliberate defection of your, your, your position, your allegiance, your commitment, a deliberate walking away from it. And he's saying that's going to be a great event in the time to come. This is how you're going to know and be able to identify that the time is drawing near. Now, theologians, man, they classify this in two categories, that apostasy, that deliberate abandoning of one's faith or commitment or allegiance, in two categories, theological apostasy and moral apostasy. Theological apostasy is when people begin to reject some or all of the teachings of Christ. Yeah, yeah the Bible says it, but they just don't feel like, you know, not for me. I mean, yeah, I know Jesus said that, but truly he's not going to condemn us for that. Yeah, I know what it says, but man, if you don't do it, you're still good because God is a loving God and a forgiving God and a merciful God. And then the moral apostasy, people begin to sever their ties with Christ. They profess his name, they just don't live the life. All right, and we know that there's nowhere written in his word where the Bible tells us that it's okay to profess his name and go and live however we want to live. But that's exactly what people are going to begin to do. It's going to be a deliberate abandoning of, of one's faith. And so we look at this event, and we think that it's a futuristic event to come. That, wow, that's going to be something, man, that people are going to begin to expect away, uh, away from the faith, and, and that's going to be one of the coming of the signs of the end time. But listen to me. It is already happening. It is unfolding right before our eyes. If you turn to 1 John real quick, 1 John chapter 4, listen, it's already happening right in our midst, and we're sitting back, and we're watching it happen. And 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Listen to what he says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Listen to what he's saying, that this is just not a futuristic event. He said, I'm telling you, yeah, the Antichrist is coming. He said, but the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world, and he's already working. He's doing these things right now, and it's going to escalate to one spectacular production to where, man, it's going to be a mass abandoning of one's faith, and they're going to begin to walk away. But he warns us this right here. That it's not just a futuristic event, it's already happening. He's already here, and it's already happening right before us. Right here, real quick, if you turn one page back in your Bible, 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Listen to this. It's even entitled, Deception of the Last Hour. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18, the Bible says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from God, the Holy One, and you know all things. Again, listen to what John is saying, that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. 
And you know what I love what he said about this right here? He said, because he drew attention to a people that went out from us. He says, but if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. See, to live in a state of apostasy in the early church was an impossibility. The anointing of God was so strong, and the Word of God was preached so strong that if you were not really living for God, you felt real uncomfortable in that midst. And he was trying to comfort them, saying, listen, they went, but they went because it was a good thing, because if they had really been of us, they would still be with us. But they are not with us that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I'll tell you what's alarming today, how the spirit of Antichrist, those who are not truly living for God, can slip right into our midst and feel real comfortable in the church today. Yeah, they're just right at home. But they set the tone in churches. It's nothing threatening them. They can come right in, man, and blend right in, and it's nothing. That same anointing is not there to expose them. It is not there. And it's because of our own apathy. It could be there, but because of our lack of concern, oh, only God can judge them. I'm not here to judge uh, anyone. Listen, Jesus said you can tell a tree by the fruit it bears, that he expects for us to see and call and challenge people to these things. Because as I stood in that dump, I began to wonder about my own sacrifice, my own efforts that I'm putting forth. Am I where I need to be? And am I doing what Christ has called me to do? Yet apathy is so consuming the church today, we're not even concerned about it. We're not concerned about, man, people dying and going to hell. We are very comfortable with sitting in church with the person next to us. And get this, we know that they're not living a consistent life before Christ. We know they're not. But we're just comfortable with it. We'll go home, we'll watch the football games while our sisters and brothers and mamas going to hell, and we know it, but we don't say a word at all because we've grown comfortable today. That type of spirit would not have existed in the earlier church. They went out, man. It was, they could not infiltrate the church like that. But over the years, apathy began to grow, and it became easy for the enemy to infiltrate the church. And so it's our responsibility as believers in Christ, as a church, as followers of God, to make sure we are alerted to man the end-time disaster. This state of apostasy is a very big deal before God. And it's a very big deal before the enemy. And so what we have to do is this right here. Understand the basis of salvation. Only for, I mean, for our lives as well, but also for the people, man, who we see living inconsistent lives. According to Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Bible says, if we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that the Father raised him from the dead, that we should be saved. All right? Confession and belief. The basis of salvation. If we confess with our mouths, not just an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, but with a deep abiding conviction that Jesus is my Lord and that he's my God. That's what he means if you confess with your mouth. And everything from acknowledgement to repentance, everything is summed up in that one statement. And then he goes on to say, and if you believe in your heart that the Father raised him from the dead, not as a one-time historical event, but he raised him from the dead, and because of his resurrection, he is my living king, my living Lord, and it is by his sacrifice that I'm a, a resident of heaven right now today, that my place is reserved because he lived and he died, and then he rose again from the grave. That is the complete salvation. But you know what we do as a church today? And again, this is about warning us so that we can help others. We see people living what I call an incomplete faith, and we don't challenge them at all. See, if confession and belief is the basis of salvation, you know what we have people that live in the, uh, the life today? We have people doing this thing right here. You have some people who confess but don't believe. And then you have other people who believe but don't confess. Either way, it's an incomplete faith according to the Word of God. And we see people living an inconsistent life. Their faith is incomplete, and we don't say anything about it. And so we're going to look at those who confess but don't believe first. 
If you have your Bibles, turn real quick to Mark chapter 7. We're going to have to start speeding up just a little bit. Mark chapter 7. And these are those who confess, but they don't believe. Listen to what the Lord says in Mark chapter 7. I'm starting reading in verse 6. He says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, listen to this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And in vain they worship me, keeping as doctrine the commandments of men. You're talking about those who confess and don't believe. This is Jesus saying, these people honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far away from me. That's Jesus' way of saying, yeah, I hear you saying, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. But he's saying, but your heart is just as wicked as any lost person that's out there. And the thing about it, we think we can play, but he knows. He knows exactly what it is. And so he has a problem with those who confess but don't believe. Another one, and you don't have to turn to it because we've got to speed it up, but in Titus chapter 1, you can write this down, Titus chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the undefiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Listen to what he says. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Again, he's describing the people who profess to know God, but really in their hearts, they've been, they're abominable, disobedient, and they've been disqualified from the faith. Again, describing the people who confess, but really don't believe. This is a very familiar passage, but Jesus echoing the same point in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Again, Jesus is saying, just because you say you belong to me, you think that's what's going to cut the mustard? You think that's going to get you in? He said, no, listen, there's going to be a lot that's going to say uh, that they've called on the name of the Lord. He says, but not everyone who calls on me shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who doeth the will of my Father. He says, and in that day, listen to this, many will say, Lord, haven't we driven out demons in your name and prophesied in your name and done many mighty works in your name? And he'll tell them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There are two things that scare about this. Number one, Jesus is describing the people who thought they were where they needed to be and they really weren't. That's what the Bible says about do not be deceived. You know what deception is? When he says do not be deceived, Jesus is saying, listen, don't think it's one way when it's really another way. Don't think you are when you aren't. I guarantee you, you're looking through the eyes of pride. You think you're knocking it out in your spiritual walk, but you're really not there. Jesus is saying, listen, it's going to be exposed. The number thing that's, two things that's alarming about that, as he says, many will say to me in that day. Listen, not just a few. He didn't say a couple of you are going to come and say that. He says, listen, many, which leads, tend to lead me to believe that it's going to be the greater majority that's going to say, we thought we were right with you, but they really weren't. We cannot continue to sit around in apathy and let people confess God when we know that they're not living the life. We know that they're not bearing any fruit in that. We can see it. And even though they say, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see different. And we sit back and we don't say anything. And then just in speeding it up, there's another group that believes but don't confess. If, I want you to read this one. If you turn to John chapter 12 real quick. John chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 42. This describes the people who believes but they won't confess Jesus. John chapter 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 42. This is after Jesus had done some great works. He preached a powerful word, and people were amazed at what he had just done. 
he came, and the Bible says this right here, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Listen to this. Jesus is describing a different group now. He's describing a group that say they believe in God, but they won't confess him. They say they live, they live for God. They got the Bible. They go to church every week, but boy, they won't tell a soul about Jesus. They'll talk about race cars. They'll talk about fishing. They'll talk about the football games, but you have never heard them say anything to anybody about Jesus Christ. They've never witnessed anybody about Jesus Christ. They've never told anybody about the goodness of Jesus Christ. And for what? And for what reason? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that equates to all people, young people. You say you go to church every week. You say you belong to Jesus Christ. But you know what? You won't tell none of your friends about Jesus. They don't know about Jesus. They haven't heard anything from you about Jesus. Why? Because it means more to you to fit in than to tell them anything about God. See, it puts you at odds if I begin to talk about Jesus, and I don't want to be the odd man out. I don't want to be the Jesus freak. And you can feel how you want to feel. Just understand Jesus got a problem with it. Understand that he, he's not comfortable with that, and he does not like that. The fact that you love the praise of men more than the praise of God, adults, man, we the same way. We don't want to be the odd man out. You know what, man? We come up with all kinds of reasons as to why we don't discuss Jesus Christ. All kinds of reasons. But to God, man, nothing is going to suffice. In Matthew 10, 33, listen to what he says. He says, he who confesses me before men, him I will confess before my father. He said, but whoever denies me before men, he says, him, I will also deny before my father. You got to understand what he's saying here, because Jesus got a real problem with those who say they believe, but they really don't confess him. And see, I believe this right here. God is so good to us, and he's so clear about his expectations of us. See, expectations wouldn't mean a thing if they weren't cl clearly communicated. So this is Jesus' way of saying, listen, you can live that life. <laughs> you can say you believe and don't confess me. Just understand where I stand on that matter. If you say you belong to me and you don't let anybody know that you belong to me, you don't witness or share me with anybody, he's just simply saying, listen, let me communicate my expectations to you well. I want you to do it. If you don't do it, understand what I'm going to do. I'm going to deny you before my father. And what I love about that, it doesn't matter the excuse. See, he doesn't say, you know what, man, if you're a little ashamed, I'll accept it. If you're a little bit afraid, hey, it'll be okay. You know what Jesus says in John 15, 22? He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But because I have come and spoke to them, they have no excuse for their sin. This is what I'm saying. Nothing you're going to say to God is going to make up for the why you did not confess him before men. Nothing. And you're going to go before him that day, and you're going to be a Matthew 7, 21 resident. You're going to find, man, that I thought it was okay. I thought I could believe and not say anything. I thought it was all right, but God, I didn't mean any harm. Jesus said, no, nah, it doesn't matter what you think. See, you know, in the, in the last days, it's not going to be what you thought. You do know that, right? It's going to be what his word says. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but the word of God abideth forever. He said, everything in this world as we know it is going to pass away. But the one thing that will remain is my word. It's going to be exactly the way I said it's going to be. Amen. It's going to be exactly the way I said it's going to be. And so follow me right here. Jesus said, in the last days, I'm not going to judge anyone. He said, the word that's been spoken is going to judge you in the last day. That's what's going to judge you, not me. Jesus said, I've already said it. And it's going to judge you in the last day. And so if you're one of those ones in either category who confess but don't believe or believe and don't confess, listen, I believe this right here, that the power of God is present to help us and to heal us. We're not the only ones. 
So you best believe as a mission group, man, myself, your pastor, and the rest of this team, we came to the conclusion, man, that our zeal went where it needed to be. I can tell you right now, man, I ended up rededicating, and I don't mind saying that, because I felt inadequate as I saw, man, the real issues in the world. And I realized how blinded we become, man, with all of our distractions and stuff, man, that, man, we are not doing anything. There's a labor of faith and a service over there in Honduras that's going on that make all of our efforts together look like nothing. Nothing to the glory of God, yet we are comfortable with what we are giving our God. And we say, well, you know, you can't do everything. We're not perfect. Listen, Jesus said this right here. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be ye holy as your Father in heaven is holy. But we continue to lower God's standard and we settle for less, right? We say, you know, I hear people say, I'm not perfect and I'm not trying to be. I beg to differ. I'm not perfect, boy, but I'm striving for it every single day. Because that's what he's commanded that we have to be. And so I believe the power of God is present to heal if we'll allow him. And so I'm going to begin to end right where we started. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sins. And then will I heal their lands. So you're going to have to humble yourself, man, to see yourself through the eyes of our humility. If you're a person who confesses but don't believe, your faith is incomplete. And if you're a person who say you believe but don't confess, then your faith is incomplete. And I know how you feel. Satan plays on the emotions. He's God of the corruptible. You may say you're afraid. You may say that I'm ashamed and all of those things. And it may comfort you in saying those things. Just understand that it's not going to fly before God. If your faith in, is inconsistent, if the life that you're living and the, and the message that you preach is inconsistent, then something is wrong. And you may be in an apostate state and don't even realize it. You know, you have people, man, even in the church, they'll run around and their mouths are just as filthy as anybody else's mouth. And they feel like cursing won't send me to hell. Cursing won't get me in trouble. All I know is in Colossians chapter 3 and in uh, John and in uh, James chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 4, God got a problem with the words that come out of our mouths if it's not consistent and edifying and uplifting somebody else. I know he has a problem with it. He's so serious about the words that we speak. He said this right here in Matthew 11, for every idle word that man may speak, you're going to give account for it in the day of judgment. Every word. You know what an idle word is? Those words that you said that you really didn't think meant anything? He said, yeah, even those words, you're going to give account for it in the day of judgment. We got to understand, man, we can't walk around in a state of apostate and think, man, that we are where we're not because I just don't want to get to heaven, man, and find out that somebody I truly love did not make it. I don't want to do that, and I don't want you to do that either. And so what we're going to prepare to do as the as prayer team begins to come back up, this is going to be the challenge this morning because there's no way we can bring you every experience back from Honduras, but we can bring you the effective and fervent heart that came as a result of a Honduras mission trip.